Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're returning, welcome back. Longtime listeners of the podcast have probably heard me say it before, but it's worth bringing up again. Data science is a large field. It's interdisciplinary. The skill sets needed to do good data science are wide ranging and diverse. One consequence of that fact, to contribute meaningfully to a data science team, you need to learn. You need to learn a lot, you need to learn constantly, and you need to learn effectively. While this podcast is always aimed at helping our listeners learn, this month we're actually taking a slightly different approach to that. I'll be speaking with a few members of the data science team at Quavio and discussing some resources that we really liked that helped us learn things that were important to our current jobs on a data science team. While this always applies this month, definitely be sure to check out the show notes. We'll give links to all the resources that we're discussing there. With that, I'd like to introduce the first two members of the team that we're talking to today. Woody, Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Longtime listeners of the podcast have definitely heard you before, but just to make sure that people know who you are, could you give a quick intro of who you are and what your role is on the team? We'll start with Woody. Yeah, sure. I'm I'm Woody. I'm a machine learning engineer on the team. I've worked on our recommender systems as well as on our experiments platform. In terms of our of my background, I have done a lot of research in computer science, specifically in high performance computing, and then also some machine learning algorithm development before I came to Clavio. I definitely love to both do the hardcore software engineering as well as sort of the like data science, machine learning, mathematical research aspect of it as well. Awesome. Charlie, how about you? Yeah, so my name's Charlie. I'm um, a data scientist here at Clavio. I've been working um, a lot on some of the internal tools for our customer success managers, and more recently working on analytics around email content and creative. Uh, my background before Clavio is a little varied. I have background in economics and business and applied math, also working in consulting research before sort of switching over to data science. One thing I really loved was learning computer science sort of on my own time, including reading books like this. So. That's a perfect segue. Let's go ahead and get into the discussion about, I believe you all have a book that we're talking about today. What resource are we here to talk about? So we're here to talk about a book with the exciting title of Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, or sorry, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Agile Primary using Ruby. I have the second edition and it's by Sandy Metz. And importantly, the acronym for it is Pooter, which I think is kind of hilarious for anybody who is out there. Excellent. A good acronym is important in any book. I think that's probably a theme that we'll hear a lot throughout this series. Okay, awesome. So generally speaking, what does the book teach you? Before we jump into that, I just want to like address one elephant in the room about this. So Clavio, we, we mostly code in Python. And although Ruby is a great language, none of us write Ruby. I, I don't know about Charlie, but I, I never learned Ruby at all. For anybody who's out there listening, despite the fact that this book is in Ruby, it's very easy to read. It's not about Ruby. It's about programming as a uh, science and a concept. I still have never written in Ruby and I was able to follow along the whole book and, and get a lot of it. I would describe it as so like for me, at least the core challenge with programming or one of the core challenges is like this question of how do you write code for applications that are big, constantly changing and touched by a lot of people in ways that you, you might not be able to anticipate. So, I mean, imagine if you're writing a smaller application, probably you're the only person writing it. You kind of understand how everything works. If you need to change something, it might be tricky in some cases, but you can sort of say, ah, I know that I need to go and write, you know, change this, this, and this, but 
as applications grow, imagine that you're working on a really big code base like at Clavio or any other sort of any other company, right? It becomes a lot harder because your application is going to need to change based on business needs that there's no way you could anticipate at the time, or just other people are going to need to change the application using code that you wrote. So the question is like, how can you build code that's easy to change and robust to a number of downstream considerations that you can anticipate when you're writing it. And I think what's amazing about the book is that there are some surprisingly concrete ways of answering such a vague question. For me, that's the, the really cool thing. And, and a lot of that comes down to how do you design individual objects in a flexible way or object-oriented programming? I think Charlie mostly hit the nail on the head. And in addition to everything that he said, it also, once you learn these principles, your coding gets faster. And the way that you think about breaking down projects becomes something where you can do a lot more concurrently than you could have at the same time. So for example, right now we're working on redesigning one of the main content creation pages in Klaviyo. And I think if it weren't for this book, I would have a lot harder time breaking that down into tasks that make sense for each team member to be able to work on at the same time. But now that I have a lot of these principles that the pioneers of object-oriented design have put forth, like not only is my code better, not only is it more extensible and maintainable, but I'm also able to organize my projects and work with team members and collaborate better too. So writing good code has so many downstream effects. It's really worth learning. That all sounds like very useful stuff, very practical, very helpful. I guess that makes sense given that practicals in the name of the book, but we touched on this a little bit. Are there any specific skills that the book covers or mindsets that it communicates that you use on a daily basis now? Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of the book is done, like Charlie said, through concrete examples. And a lot of those examples are through the lens of refactoring code that I could totally imagine myself having written. You have some task, you want to finish this task, could you just write the first thing that comes to mind? Your code's fine and your code works. But then you know, it doesn't even have to be somebody else coming in to look at it. It could be six months down the road, you look back and you're like, what was I writing? What was I thinking? Now I need to do something with this, right? What Sandy Metz does is she starts with code like that and then says, okay, well, how would we think about refactoring this code? And why would we make the decisions that we do? One of the things that I really like is she sort of has this philosophy of your code is kind of going to expand and you might think like, oh, my code is getting messier and messier, but actually we're getting to a point where we can simplify the objects. Now, what that looks like concretely, I think one of the big things that I took away from it is I always knew that you should have really small functions that do one thing. I always knew that your classes should really have like one common theme. But I think that people are often really loath to use classes in programming in a way that might seem a little bit frivolous. So she advocates a lot for having really small objects that do only one thing. And that means your classes too. For example, if you have a bicycle class, you might not think of making wheels themselves another class because that seems like, oh, well, how complicated can a wheel be? But really, there's no downside to having all of these extra little objects because it makes your code a lot more extensible and a lot more flexible and easier to, to reason about. Yeah, I definitely agree on the classes thing. One sort of similar example that I worked on is the quarterly growth report, which is a tool that we built for Clavio CSMs. And what it does is it basically takes a bunch of data from Clavio from an individual account and makes a Google slide deck basically goes over different performance metrics on a user's account in Clavio. And for me, object-oriented programming or this idea of single responsibility was really important because this was something that we wanted to change a lot. So different CSMs would come and say, oh, well, what if you could add a slide on this? Or what if you could add a slide on this? We had some pretty complicated code that would basically take you know, a rough JSON expression of data, manipulate that in pandas, and then turn that into 
something that can be put into a Google slide deck and call all the relevant API calls. So a couple examples of flexibility there were, you know, we tried to really abstract here the classes that do data manipulation and then abstract away the classes that did API calls. And the idea there is what if in the future, you know, we want to have the same thing, but in a PowerPoint presentation, not a Google slide deck, right? There, you, you could very easily isolate just the parts that did that one thing or just the parts that did Google API calls. Another thing that we didn't anticipate actually later on is people really wanting reports that reported on a monthly basis instead of a quarterly basis. And so for there, a lot of our code that dealt with saying, here's our data, it's currently monthly. We're going to figure out which months are in one quarter or one year quarter. So, you know, Q1 would be January, February, March, Q2 would be um, April, May, June, et cetera. All of those was, were very tightly wound inside of different parts of the classes. And so there, a challenge was basically abstracting away all of the parts of different timeframes from the incoming data to the timeframes and the outgoing data. And so once we abstracted those into sort of time period handler classes, that made the sort of transition to a monthly report really easy. Also, it means that if we wanted to in the future do like a yearly report, we could do that very easily too, because there's only a handful of functions that, that worry about that stuff. Are there any other examples that really stood out to you? Yeah, I, I have two that kind of come to mind and they're sort of at opposite ends of the, the spectrum in terms of workflow. So maybe I'll, I'll start with the one that's uh, probably more interesting to the data science-y types out there. And that's working in Jupyter Notebooks or Jupyter Lab or whatever your notebook flow is. I'm assuming everybody has had this experience where you're working on a project, you're doing a lot of like exploration of the data, of models, of hyperparameter tuning, of all of these like, little things that just make doing data science a little bit more of an art form instead of a science at times. And then you look back at your notebook and it's a mess, right? I think even in the notebook setting, following good object-oriented design can make you more productive, can make it easier to share your results and overall just improve your workflow. I did my first big notebook project recently and you know we pulled the data and we were all working together. And one of the things that I laid out for our team really early on was First, just having like a good directory structure and then like imports in these kinds of projects can get really messy. And so we came up with a file that sort of standardized everything so that we could have a good import structure and like an actual code base. And basically, anytime that we found something that was really useful, for example, for pre-processing, so maybe it was like filtering by companies where we think that the subject lines are in English, like putting that into a separate file and a separate function that can then be called across notebooks and then cleaning up your notebook as you go, doing that in accordance with object-oriented design made us able to iterate faster. And whenever it came time to write a report on all the results, it was sort of like, okay, well, we just read through the notebook and it's actually up to date and it was actually usable. And that was the first time I'd been really rigorous about it. And I think it made us way more productive. On the engineering side of things, like I said, I used to be on the recommendation system here. At Clavio, one of the things is we try not to share any customer level specific data between our individual customers because we want each company that comes into Clavio to own their own data. And we're just gathering and storing it for them so that we can do stuff with it for them or they can take it and do stuff themselves. So that means like, for example, if we're, if we're serving 300,000 companies product recommendations, we're gonna have 300,000 different instances of a given example. So for example, like maybe it's just your popular items or maybe collaborative filtering, or maybe it's some neural network, right? Being able to flexibly design a system that not only can version each of those algorithms, train those algorithms, tune hyperparameters for those algorithms, but also take in different data sources in order to use the different types of models can be really hard. And on top of that, then you add a whole nother layer of, okay, well, how do you measure this? How do you like gather the click data? How do you gather like whether somebody has converted in terms of buying a product? 
And if you think about the scale that we're operating at, that's kind of insane. But come in practical object-oriented design in Python, I guess, which doesn't have as good of an acronym. Now you can break this down into really simple concepts. And if you can design your system really well, we're now able to take a new algorithm. Once we have sort of the mathematical foundation of it worked out, we can now implement that algorithm, put it in the database, train it for 300,000 companies, and then also start measuring in a live A-B test that we've also written in this like practical object-oriented design way. We could do all of that implementation in like the goal was less than eight hours, but I think practically we've seen it done in two hours, net new code working for all of our customers really fast because we followed these design principles. Yeah, that's huge. In any field where you have to kind of iterate algorithms and explore new things quickly, it's huge to have a framework like that where you can actually iterate that quickly. Yeah. And one of the, one of the concepts that Sandy Mess talks about is having open close code, which means that you could look at any individual piece of code and it is a complete system, but then you also can add new code to that without having to perturb anything else in the system. And so whenever you follow really good object-oriented design, that becomes possible most of the time. Obviously, there's always something that you'll have to fiddle with in, in real systems, unless it was an expected addition. But for the most part, it's true. A big skill or one way that I tried to sort of broke it down in my head was just, yeah, figuring out exactly what should be a class, what each class should give from one class to another, right? And then I think a lot of the other principles that we talked about sort of fall out from that. How are classes dependent? How do you reduce the amount of classes that are sort of dependent on each other? How do you do testing? All that kind of stuff. But it does come down to having single classes and simple sort of messages or simple data that passes through one class to another. Going along with that, I guess we haven't said it explicitly, but prefer composition over inheritance. I know people have probably heard that before, but one of the things that's great about this book is Oftentimes, as you first think about a problem, you can't think of your class as having this like has a relationship that composition has, but she gives you concrete examples of places where your natural inclination might be to inherit from another class, shows you why that's bad, and then gives you like the refactoring so that you can then like actually implement it in a way that's more flexible yourself. Who would you recommend reads this book? Is this aimed at beginners, experts, both or neither? I would actually say... Not total beginners. I read this book at a really good time in my programming journey. And that was, I wasn't a total beginner, but I was architecting a somewhat complicated system for the very first time. So prior to joining Clavio, I had certainly written a lot of code. It was a little bit more, I used some classes, but it was more focused on sort of a set of steps that it would, would go through and sort of more procedural, I guess. When it came to Clavio, one of my first tasks was to sort of architect this quarterly growth report system that was starting simple and was but was going to live in production was we wanted to expand it in a lot of ways and i really struggled at first with how to do that i i wrote things in a somewhat procedural way i tried to do classes but i, I wrote things which in in hindsight don't really make sense so as one example i thought you know one of the things that she talks about in the book is that each class should have one public function and that's basically a function that can be called outside of the class and so that's tightly linked with this idea of you know having simple classes with simple responsibilities I remember this is really dumb. I took the opposite approach of saying, well, you know, I really want it to be very clear what my classes are doing. So each class is going to have four public functions. They're all the same. But that meant that it was a lot harder to build, right? Because I had to sort of fit anything I wanted to build into this very complicated four function setup. As I was really sort of struggling through that process, one of our teammates, Maritza, said, you should check out this book, Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby. And I think the experience of reading that book as I had this sort of very concrete 
problem to work through really helps because I think some of the concepts are kind of dense and it's it's really helpful to sort of read it, see how code is refactored in that book, and then think, okay, for my own application, how can I make it better using these kinds of principles? I think Charlie's right. Like absolute beginners to programming, you'll get something out of the book, but a lot of it will go past you because you do need to be fluent with doing coding. But I don't think you have to be some expert either. I think at the like transition into intermediate is whenever I would like say is the optimal time. And also like Charlie said, when you have a concrete project to work on is obviously the best time. But I don't think that that means you should wait to read this because I think you can get stuff out of it. Also, I think if you're an expert and you just want to write better code and you feel like you don't know that much about object-oriented design, you should still absolutely read this. I basically think anytime where you're working in industry and you're doing code, you should read it. <laughs> I think it's very good. I think you should read it if you're a data scientist. It can help you as a data scientist to write better code. And I think you should absolutely read it as an engineer because that's your job is to, to write good code. It's a pretty strong endorsement. Anyone working in industry writing code, data scientist or engineer, that's that's a pretty strong statement. I should probably read this. I think you should. I mean, I know you don't do a ton of coding, but I feel like even it's fun because it's like a cool theoretical puzzle too. So I, I don't know, like it's a quick read. I would say it's a bit like if you imagine learning a foreign language, like, you know, your first year is obviously memorizing a lot of words and sort of basic grammar. And then your second or third year is when you start to say, here's how to sort of think in paragraphs and structure a beautiful paragraph in that language. And I think this book is sort of like thinking in paragraphs for, for coding. Writing a good five paragraph essay. This is the middle school regime for coding or what it should be. <laughs> yes, each you have to have an intro class and then three point classes <laughs> and a wrap up class. Finally, a summary conclusion, yes. yeah. <laughs> then you learn to break the rules. Oh, yes. Did this book have any light bulb moments for you or other moments that you really enjoyed while you were reading it? I would say the idea of minimizing dependencies felt like a real light bulb moment. Dependency is basically any time that if you're changing one class, that there are other classes that need to be changed as a result of that. So maybe, you know, I'm changing the quarterly growth report data transformer class. And then every time you change that, you know, that changes the, the outputs of that class. And so you're going to have to change all of the quarterly growth report slide deck API call formatter classes because they're affected in some downstream, really tangible downstream way. And so she sort of draws out, basically, if you imagine a diagram with all the classes and there's a lot of lines going through, there's a lot of dependencies to each one, that system is a lot harder to refactor compared to, you know, if classes give things that are really simple and almost kind of obvious and dumb, it can be a lot easier to refactor it later down the line. And I think just that picture of like, you know, a bunch of circles with tons of lines going through them versus the same number of circles with fewer lines was a light bulb moment for me. Yeah. I think the whole thing is kind of about that same topic in a bunch of different facets. So I think that my light bulb was about the same thing, but it came from the section where she talks about writing tests and sort of how do you write tests that are maintainable? Because a lot of times, whenever you change your code, you have to go and fix your tests too. And that's always going to happen. But like, it's painful and it sucks because you're like maintaining twice the amount of code by reducing these dependencies and writing tests that are really about like, okay, what do we expect to go in and what do we expect to come out? I had sort of similar light bulb moments about this whole like preferring composition over inheritance, reducing dependencies and making sure that the downstream effects are managed basically. So yeah, same thing for me, but just in a different part of the book. Anything else we should know about this book? Not about the book per se, but if you are maybe interested, but you want to get a flavor of it before you read the whole book, Sandy Metz has some really good YouTube talks. She did one about something called the Gilded Rose Kata, which is basically this like knotted up piece of code where she goes through 
and refactors the code in a very similar way with very similar principles. It's about 40 minutes long. You can watch it on 2x. It's super worth a watch. And if you really like that, then you would like this book as well. We'll have that link in the show notes. Next up on the podcast, we have Chris. Chris, would you like to give us a quick intro who you are, what you do on the team? Uh, yes. Thanks, Michael. I joined Clavio as a senior data scientist about a month ago. And I, I work currently on a little pod working on uh, ideas for incorporating data into creative. Yeah, I think that's the same group that Charlie is on. And he was uh, just on the podcast. Sounds like you might have some interesting things to talk about about data science for us. What resource are we here to talk about today? So I'm here today to talk about a book called Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And I think it's a little bit of an atypical choice, actually. Um, I think that when you typically ask data scientists for books that are top of mind that they would recommend, probably tend to get things that are more like textbooks, really um, technical resources. But I kind of wanted to offer a different perspective with this this time. Okay, let's talk about that perspective then. Generally speaking, what does Weapons of Math Destruction teach the person that reads it? I think you hear a lot of hype today around big data, AI, and the benefits of data science. And while it's true, these are very powerful tools uh, and they can unlock a lot of value for companies, I think it's a misconception that they're cure-alls for all of society's problems. And I think you know, a lot of us know that there are things that AI can't do well today, but I, but I do think it's sort of a commonly held belief that it's sort of just a matter of time until AI technology catches up and then eventually we can use AI to solve you know, most of our problems, right? I don't want to be pessimistic. I think it's important to be optimistic and to, and to have this view. But I also think that like blindly having this view can, can be somewhat dangerous. You know, I think not only can data science not solve all of our problems, uh, especially today, but you know, when data science is applied indiscriminately, it can actually introduce a whole lot of serious new problems as well. And this book, Weapons of Math Destruction, kind of gives a really nice overview and introduction to some of these problems. Someday we'll be able to outsource the production of this podcast entirely to an AI, but I can tell you for sure that's not the case today. You're right. That's definitely an interesting choice of resource. This is a question that I'm asking everyone. It's not specific to this book. Why is this helpful for someone looking to join a data science team or someone who's on a data science team? I think part of the challenge is that data science is already like a really broad field, you know, comprises a lot of these technical subfields. And so data scientists are stretched thin, focusing on mastering all these various technical components in each of these areas. You know, so whether that's like statistical analysis and like you know, statistics is a whole field in itself, programming, which is, of course, a whole field in itself, learning specific machine learning models, which, again, you could take courses and courses just on that. There's a lot there. And I think data scientists often tend to miss the forest for the trees. You know, they're focusing on all these different technical areas. They're not maybe thinking about the bigger picture. I also think that you know, part of the problem stems from how data scientists are incentivized and rewarded. So like when you're interviewing for a data science position, you know, a lot of those interviews tend to focus on technical knowledge. And then most data scientists who are already in the role, they're evaluated on various like quantitative metrics like output, lift, things like that. So the emphasis tends to be on this very, you know, I would say kind of short-sighted numerical focus and much less so on like the ethical and reputational ramifications of the work that they're doing. So to get back to your question of you know, why I recommend this to someone joining a data science team, Part of it, like I said earlier, is, is that it's kind of out of left field. So, you know, people, I think, tend to go with these sort of like, they, they focus on the technical parts of all these different subfields. But I, but I think that like the ethical implications are an equally important part, if not maybe even more important. So, so that's one reason why I recommend it. But I also think that this book is really timely in light of all the issues around social injustice and inequality that we saw, you know, come to a head in the past year. And, and I would, you know, just thinking of all the data scientists that I've known in my life, I would imagine that, you know, most data scientists don't consider themselves to be racist or sexist or really like biased. And yet data science as a collective whole is responsible for creating some of the very same models that are exacerbating this inequality. And you know, in any field, there are gonna be bad actors. 
So I imagine there are, you know, certain people in data science who are maybe doing things maliciously. And we probably need stronger laws around you know, data privacy and, and protections for people to help limit the behavior of these bad actors. But I think a far more common situation is that these bad models or these WMDs, uh, as the author calls them, I think they're just being created more out of haste and obliviousness for the damage they're causing rather than out of any sort of malice, you know, in most cases. And so I think it's incumbent upon all data scientists to be socially responsible and to read books like this. I think over the past decade or so, it's become clear like how important data is and how data science has kind of just exploded into virtually every area of our lives. And there's every indication that trend's going to continue. So I think if we as data scientists want to do our part in changing the world for the better, then each of us needs to open our eyes to the, you know, the possible dangers and pitfalls of the work that we're currently doing. Agreed. It even applies to people who you might think that your work is completely disconnected, completely unrelated to some of those problems. But just the nature of research, the nature of collaborative working, advancements in one field oftentimes get grabbed and applied to another because they're just good math or good science. So it's important to have this mindset in place, even if you're working in a field that seems completely unrelated to like big societal problems. You're right. That kind of copy and paste approach to, to scientific solutions uh, is, is really common. Are there any specific mindsets that the book communicates that you use on a daily basis or any specific skills that it covers? Maybe not so much specific skills because it's more of a high level book, but I think some of the, mind, the mindset part is, is big. There are many things, there are components of these weapons of math destruction that I think are, are worth thinking about. So, you know, one thing, for example, is like opacity. So a lot of these models, what makes them dangerous is that they're black boxes and you're unable to really probe them and to question them. But you'll see in a lot of situations that, you know, are brought up in this book is, you know, some model will be put into place. It will cause someone to be put into a bad situation. And that person has no ability to understand why that happened or to really challenge what the model did in their case. And a lot of times, you know, models are evaluated on how they perform on a group of people, like on the sort of the whole population. No model's perfect. Every statistician will admit to that. But we don't oftentimes think carefully about the edge cases, like those sort of residual errors. Like, you know, so what happens to that one person who wasn't modeled properly, right? Like, is their life turned upside down by this model? I mean, there are real ramifications for some of these. And so I think one thing that I think about all the time are, are you know, this concept of edge cases, whether you're building a model or even you're just designing a product. I think it's really important to think about how these things affect everyone and not just the majority of users. There are some arguments that I'm hearing here potentially for a return of like minimaxity as an approach you think of. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I think we already have a sense of the answer to this question, but just to dig in in a little more detail, who would you recommend reads this? Is this aimed at beginners, experts, both, neither? It's a great question. I mean, this is the kind of book I think that could help anybody potentially. And the book is written. Um, it's not a particularly like uh, inaccessible book. So anyone could really pick this up and read it, regardless of how much technical know-how that they have. And I've actually revisited this book a couple of times in my career already. It's a good book to read and reflect on where, you know, what you're doing and, and sort of where you're at. So I would say it's a book that you can kind of read at any point in your career. And one of the reasons I think you know, maybe it's a good book for starting out is that you know, it maybe helps to ground you a little as, as you're starting. Is what I'm doing something that I think is right? How can I align my, um, my work with my values? Did you have any light bulb moments during this book or other moments that you really enjoyed while you were reading it? I mean, one thing I thought was interesting that they, they mentioned was just how, you know, so for example, there were a lot of uh, examples around hiring practices. And, you know, it's something I, I guess I hadn't thought about because, you know, in data science, it tends to be very hands-on. So, you know, when you interview for a data science position, you go through people. Generally speaking, you know, there are a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and um, interviews and whatnot. So people kind of evaluate you in a very human level. But for a lot of jobs, especially entry-level jobs and like factories, things like that, there's this tendency to move things towards algorithmic hiring, you know, so you'll fill out some kind of like personality test or something. And really, that's just a black box model. And it's just a way to try to filter people out at scale. And so this is an example of how 
unfortunately, this is one of those like income inequality issues. People who are going for maybe like the, the sort of more white collar jobs tend to be evaluated more by, more by people, whereas people who are in sort of the, you know, the lower earning positions are oftentimes funneled through these potentially destructive models, not a lot of clarity and why they got rejected or whatnot. So I think the light bulb at the moment has just come from realizing that there's so many models out there, like this recidivism models for determining you know, who's likely to you know, recommit a crime, things like this, that just and they're everywhere. You know, Even policing models, like trying to figure out where police should be. There are a lot of these data-driven models out there. And on the surface, they all seem laudable. Like They're all there to try to solve problems and allocate resources intelligently. But just realizing like how pervasive these are and how problematic so many of these models really are, I find that to be the eye-opening thing. So it's just kind of a collection of all these different uh, applications that I find just mind-blowing. That sounds intense. I should read this book. Is there anything else we should know about the book? You know, I, I would say the, the book, I think, only kind of covers these things at a high level. So, you know, I, I think in particular, it would be interesting to dig in on some of these models in more detail and just to really understand them. So I kind of see this as like a really good primer into thinking about the ethics of modeling and thinking about data science, but I don't think it's comprehensive in that, you know, if you really want to think about this more, you need to find external resources. Well, thanks for running through that book with us. In the audience, if this sounds interesting to you, we're going to include some resources in the show notes on how to find it. Hope that you enjoyed it if you read it. And next up on the podcast, we have Paul. Paul, do you want to give us a quick intro of who you are and what you do on the data science team? I'm Paul on the data science team, been an engineer at Clavio for about a year. I'm actually visiting the data science team from the events team, which is, I would I'd call it more of a data engineering team. What are you here to talk with us about today? Today, I am here to talk about CS4100 at Northeastern and publicly accessible side, which is CS1088, which is the Berkeley course, which releases all of its course materials free and openly on, online. Fantastic. What does the course cover? Generally speaking, what does the course teach you? I guess from the syllabus directly, this is an introductory course on artificial intelligence, which may broadly be thought of as the art and science of making computers act or be, question mark, clever. So you can see there's a little bit of a philosophical side note there. But yeah, the course covers planning, knowledge representation, statistical machine learning, both supervised and reinforcement, and then a section on ethics at the end. You know, obviously each of these topics is broad enough to be its own course or set of courses or master's degree or PhD. So you really only get a small taste of each, but it gives you an idea of sort of what's possible and what's out there. It sort of gives you that idea more than it does an idea of exactly how to use each of these tools in like a production setting. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I love the question mark in the syllabus there. Nice little treat. You touched on this briefly, but tell me a little bit about the structure of the course. Kind of how is it divided up? It's a relatively standard layout for like a, an upper level college technical course. 13 lecture topics spread across about 20 lectures, 11 homeworks, six rather large projects, which take between you know 15 and 30 hours each. Something I, I really like about the structure of the course is that it starts you off at sort of search, which I think a lot of people don't think of as relevant to like AI or machine learning, but starting off at search really teaches you how important it is to model your data correctly. Because actually a lot of problems can be solved with search if you model things in the right way. It makes it clear that sort of modeling your data is as important as picking a fancy algorithm. And then sort of from search, you go through sort of hidden Markov models, you know, Bayesian statistics, and you kind of end up at gradient descent and recurrent neural networks, which are just big matrices of parameters that are adjusted iteratively by big calculus with constants determined by big hyperparameters. And it's 
you could have a whole episode on that. But I've heard if you pick the right parameters and call your network something trendy, they'll give you a free Flowrida ticket. That's a NeurIPS joke because he performed at NeurIPS. I think the best, like the coolest part of the course and kind of the part that stuck out the most to me in terms of structure were the projects. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about the projects. The, the projects are really, really well done. This is sort of the meatiest part of the course and the part that comes really directly from the CS188 materials. The projects use a really cool Pac-Man type interface for all of the different projects. So you can imagine the search project is actually like you're implementing search, but the way you get to see it play out is via like frames of Pac-Man. So it's a very, very easy thing to visualize when you implement your algorithm, like exactly what it's doing. You know, when you do value iteration and cue learning, sort of the way they model that is in detecting the positions of ghosts given, you know, fuzzy measurements to the ghosts, like fuzzy distance measurements between Pac-Man and the ghosts. And so as your agent kind of plays out and like, you know, gets more and more of these sort of like fuzzy measurements, you can see your Pac-Man's idea of where the ghosts are kind of converge to the actual location of the ghost. And so this whole like system they've built out is really, really powerful for teaching you what these algorithms actually look like and how they work. You know, project five is one that definitely stuck out to me, but unfortunately, and maybe ironically from my previous sentences, like doesn't use the Pac-Man <laughs> interface, but project five like has you replicate a Google Translate feature. The feature is sort of recognizing the language a web page is written in. This actually is powered by like a recurrent neural network in Chrome. So it's really cool because you get to kind of build your own RNN that detects the language of a certain word given the letters seen thus far, just kind of get to see like how it all works and like how machine learning scientists design these networks to like detect language. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot there in terms of just, those are very weighty tasks that you're asked to do. I mean, on the Pac-Man side, the version of the game that you're basically implementing where you only have an idea of where the ghosts are, that sounds very difficult. That game sounds pretty hard. Yeah, I would not want to be Pac-Man in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of uncertainty to start out. <laughs> you turn one corner and uh-oh, game over. Yeah, seriously. They actually remove the walls in that challenge oh, because interesting. you only get measurements based on like as the crow flies type distance. Yeah, that definitely sounds like there's a fair amount to learn there from the course and the projects. But this is a question that I'm asking everyone about the resources that we're talking about. So for you, it's actually going to be slightly different because there's kind of two dimensions here. So why was this helpful for you both as someone who now works on a data science team and as someone who works on a data engineering team as well? I'm gonna save the data engineering answer for your next question, actually. On the data science side, this course helped me a lot, I think, in two major areas. And, you know, I've only been working in data science for, you know, a month or two now. So this I'm sure would, would change the more experience I got, but it helped me a lot in understanding my teammates' work and kind of like not being intimidated when people sort of casually mention statistical methods that they're using to like implement features at Clavio, I think if you haven't taken a course like this, when someone just kind of like casually throws out like a hidden Markov model, it can be really intimidating if you've never like seen that word before, even if you don't have a deep understanding of what it means. This course does actually go over hidden Markov models. So if you took it, you would have a deep understanding of what they mean, but just being introduced to the terminology helps a lot with imposter syndrome and 
confidence and like your ability to understand your teammates to work. And it also kind of empowered me to start asking questions like when somebody hands me requirements, it empowered me to ask questions like, you know, exactly how accurate does this really have to be? Can we make this a little inaccurate in exchange for like a lot of speed? You know, like, and nobody would really notice, like, is that okay to do? You know, how often does this really have to succeed? Can this succeed 99% of the time? And that 0.1% of the time can get us, you know, a huge cost savings in like the number of servers we have to run. It empowered me to start asking the probabilistic questions. And as we've talked about on this podcast before plenty of times, that matters a lot. When yes. you're dealing with real scale on the web and, and in the cloud, it matters a lot. Okay, so let's go over that second question then. Are there any specific skills that the course covered or mindsets that it communicated that you end up using on a daily basis now? Yeah, for sure. I think when you take this course, you're going to go through it and, you know, it's fun, it's cute, you'll learn a lot. There isn't actually that much programming. You only end up writing maybe a thousand lines of code total. If that, if you go hard on the final project, you might write a thousand lines of code, but it's just so abundantly clear to you that the code you're working with is enormous, like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lines of code that are like making all this Pac-Man stuff work. And so I think that really conveys the mindset that like so much of data science work is actually not about writing the algorithm. 80 to 90% of your work is going to be everything that surrounds your algorithm, which is first and foremost, like ensuring your data is clean and correct, ensuring that your data is served according to your model's requirements, um, ensuring that your model trains as efficiently as needed for like production use, making sure you can understand the output of your model, right? So many of these projects, you build your model and then you like print the output and it's just like a big vector of numbers and you're like, uh, okay. Okay, like then what? Ensuring your model's output is useful, ensuring your model's output is displayed correctly, right? Even the whole like the whole Pac-Man interface is built out for you. And that's very non-trivial. Like that's a lot of work. Tons of data science is actually displaying your results so that users can actually get value from them. Truly one of the coolest parts of this code or of this course is looking at the code provided by uh, John De Niro, Dan Klein, and Peter Beal, looking at just the code they provide to you because it handles all of the hard stuff for you really and just leaves you with the single task of like writing the algorithm, which really is such a minuscule part of the whole project. And yeah, I guess that sort of plays into the data engineering side of yeah. this, which is like, you know, on the events team, we serve the data for all of Klaviyo and that is such a hugely non-trivial task. It just, it reminds you that the algorithms are a relatively small piece of the code when it comes to the overall like delivery of a data science feature. Small, potentially powerful, but if it doesn't have that foundation, you can't get any of that power. That's a good overall message. Who would you recommend takes this course? Is this aimed mostly at kind of beginners, experts, both, neither? It really depends, you know, what, what you mean by beginner. In the syllabus earlier, it's labeled as an introductory course, but, you know, it's an upper level course at a, at a university. If you're a beginner to the subfield of AI, it's perfect. You know, it's a great introductory course. If you haven't programmed or taken calculus, you know, it's probably going to kick you in the head. I think a good heuristic for, you know, whether you're prepared for this course is like, if the words inheritance, conditional probability, integral, normal distribution, or matrix multiplication don't mean anything to you, you could probably pass the course, but you're not, you're not gonna get as much out of it. You're not gonna get kind of the deep understanding of the material, which in my view is the, is the, the joy of this course. 
it's perfect if you have, you know, for example, a technical background in something besides AI, and you have an interest in learning, you know, what kind of algorithms power the automated decisions in our lives right now. It's perfect if you have an AICS background and you want some like fun lax puzzles to do in a weekend. If you're in AI, this is not a hard course. Like the introductory stuff, like all the projects you could do in a weekend and have a great time with it. I would recommend it if you want a sandbox to develop your winning model for a Pac-Man AI competition. But yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good good idea of who should take the course. Did you have any light bulb moments in the course of taking this course or other moments that you really enjoyed that we haven't already talked about? Yeah, good question. Here's where I want to plug the AI uh, ethics portion of the course. As we like use AI more in our world, one of the most essential principles we should be following is that AI systems should have nothing but a positive impact on people who are not actively choosing to use that system. And this was an opinion that I developed during sort of the last portion of the course, which is a bunch of AI ethics lectures taught by a philosophy press professor at Northeastern. You know, we, we, we played with the moral machine. This is what kind of made me realize that like AI has negative externalities, kind of like pollution, where when people don't have a meaningful choice to engage with a certain AI system, they have to take all of the negatives from it. And they're not even really aware that it's happening. I really think it is a lot like the pollution from a, a fracking plant, for example. The more AI we use, the more we need to be very explicit about telling people when they are using the system and when they're not. That was a big light bulb moment for me in the course. And I am really grateful that the course spent three whole lectures on ethics. because I think it's important for the people who will be implementing it in the, in the future. Agreed. This is actually the second discussion we've had on data science ethics in this particular podcast episode. It's an important topic. I promise we will do a full episode on kind of AI ethics at some and, and machine learning ethics and stuff like that at some point on this podcast, but they're good discussions to have and they really do matter for everyone that's a practitioner of it. Yeah, I, I would recommend everyone who is looking for a data science resource to include an ethics resource in, in, their, in their reading. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and include a link to learn more about the course in the show notes here. Is there anything else that we should know about the course? I think that's about it. Okay, awesome. If this sounds like something that will help you learn, that will help you grow in your understanding of AI and your understanding of ethics of AI and practicing thereof, and maybe even your understanding of Pac-Man, then go ahead and check it out. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Yeah, no problem, Michael. We've reached the end of this episode of the Clavio Data Science Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Clavio, as all episodes are. If you are interested in learning more about Clavio, where our mission is to empower creators to own their growth, you can visit Clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked this podcast, feel free to subscribe. You can find us in just about every major podcast distribution network. If you have any questions, the best way to get in contact with me is on my Twitter. That username is at Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's at L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thanks for listening. Have a great month.